Welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. I'm this week's host, Eddie Webb, and with me is nobody. There's nobody. Well, I mean, there's, there's somebody else here, but my other co-hosts are not here at the moment. Um, uh, it, it's It's been, I think it's safe to say it's been a weird everything for a lot of people. Um, uh, but uh, uh, Dixie lives in the, the Washington, D.C. area, um, and Matthew is in the U.K. is currently in lockdown, so there's a lot going on. Um, but we're not going to let that stop this because um, I have been uh, uh, wanting to get uh, my friend Chris Spivey on the podcast again um, to talk about a lot of things, but about masks and mythos, which is in Kickstarter right now. So thanks for coming on, Chris. I appreciate it. Oop, did we lose you? No, I was just waiting to oh. see if I could make you a little concerned. It's still it having oh. by yourself. <laughs> I was. I was concerned. I was like, what happened? Oh my God. <laughs> Everyone's gone. It's it, 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 it's nihilism. That's it, nihilism in this space right here. Uh, uh, thanks. I appreciate being brought back on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we get into uh, uh, the, the thing that we're here to talk about, um, there, there's a couple things I think is much more important that you and I talk about. Uh, uh, and the first is, um, I don't know if you saw, but uh, for my birthday, I got the Sylvester McCoy cameo. I, my, my, my family got that for me for my birthday. You just tried to make me jealous on air. I refuse <laughs> yes. to yes. fall into that trap. <laughs> just because Sylvester McCoy is my doctor, I, I will not <laughs> succumb to that. But I will you... sit here in my <laughs> Time Lord Victoria's status and be quiet. Oh, oh, that's nice, nice. Um, yeah, but for 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 listeners who don't know, um, um, Chris and I have, have have recently bonded because we both of us are huge fans of Sylvester McCoy's uh, interpretation of Doctor Who, and uh, recently I got the uh, Blu-ray set of his last season in Doctor Who, which is still not only his I think his best season overall, but also one of the better seasons of classic Doctor Who. Period. Hands down. And I would probably say one of the best seasons of Doctor Who in general. I think that's that's fair. Um, I rewatched it recently because I was expecting somebody to be like, you know, because nostalgia is like, oh, of course, you know, it's Christopher Henrik. I love Christopher Henrik. And it's, it's you know, uh, Ghostlight. I love Ghostlight. And it's survival, which is a thing that exists. And, you know, I was like, I was <laughs> thinking it was not going to age well, but I was genuinely surprised, like, how pacey curse of Henrik in particular is it's like it it it, it flows it doesn't flows like 80s television it flows like almost like modern television it's that punchy and fast it's really really surprised by that and the creepiness factor still that sort of lingers in ghost light is incredible that is oh yeah although it's it's missing a few i think they could have used one more episode but from what they have it is beautifully crafted you've got all sort of the gothic horror lingering with everything and it's a great character study for ace yeah, and, and I mean, like, you're right. I, I feel like there's there's definitely um, – it, it, it's derided somewhat fairly for the plot being a little obtuse, although when I watched it again, I was like, oh, I actually kind of followed a lot of that, but I don't know how much of that is over the decades. I've watched it over and over, and I've ta- heard people talking about it, and I've kind of figured out the plot, but I feel like it's, it's it could have used one more episode of just explaining things a little bit better. Um, <laughs> but you're right. The atmosphere is is so – uh, perfectly like you know the 1920s vibe gets nailed down but also the, the creepiness and that perfect blending of gothic horror tropes and science fiction which doctor who does particularly well in general 
was yeah it's just a fantastic and also really good about finally actually establishing uh the backstory of the companion ace in a way that just hadn't really been done prior to that if only like the master plan had come to fruition with ace that would have been something to really see oh i know yeah the the cartmel master plan of of, of actually taking ace on a, on a character arc which is novel <laughs> it's like hey, we'll just 25 <laughs> years maybe we should actually have these characters go somewhere that might be a weird thing to try out so i guess to 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 at least touch on it. So Ghostlight was actually one of the touchstones that I used to get me in the mood when I was working on Guy Second Edition to sort of get into that mindset, the first oh, really? or two of it. I mean, I guess I could see that because um, the whole kind of helpful but cryptic spirit thing would actually work really well for yeah. Geist. Also a certain amount of the trying to struggle against your role uh it's like you have a certain role and then you're trying to like push against those boundaries and become something new which is also a very kind of geist concept so i hadn't thought about that but this is a really good point i, I may know i may be a big fan of doctor who and able to apply in multiple situations <laughs> well i mean uh, uh you're not the only one i remember um on requiem uh, uh this is when rose and i were still working at the ccp offices uh and so she was the requiem line developer at the time and i was uh, person handling all the PDF stuff. And so I'd see drafts of stuff before it goes online. So I was skimming through, uh, I forget which book it is, but one of the books, I think it was one of the Night Horrors books. Uh, I, I'm, I'm flipping through, I'm flipping through, flipping through. And then finally I stop, I get up, I walk over to her office like Rose. She's like, what? I'm like, is a grass reference? Really? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, well, you know, the grass is actually a mythological piece. I guess, but you and I both know why it's there. <laughs> She's like, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so, like, not many people have noticed it. I mean, but like, it, it almost always someone knows it. It's always like a big Finnish fan. Like, oh, hey, it's the greatest. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will I'll point out, though, that you and Matthew have an innate talent to notice my many jokes I put inside of the different things that I'm writing. <laughs> It is, it is disturbing. So now I'm going to have to be a little bit sneakier for the next one's like <laughs> Yeah, I mean, do you want to talk about the one that we just had recently? That's your project. I want to spoil sure, on air. It's, it's fine. It's it will be out sooner than later. Fair enough. Um, so uh, uh, you you would ask me to uh, do some uh, consulting reading for Haunted West, which is a book coming up. And I do want to talk about Haunted West at some point, but. Um, I just kept going through. It's like you know, oh, so this is Professor Challenger, and oh, here I can I can um, play. You know, it's it's the, it's the greatest game, and all these Victorian <laughs> references. And you were just like, God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> I may know a bit about Victorian literature. <laughs> and I worked hard. I thought they were like perfect because no one else had noticed them. They're just reading through. Hey, this is great. It's really interesting, and everyone's. Perfect. And here comes Eddie. Hey, there's this, this, and this. And this is where you got it. This is your link, isn't it? It's like, oh. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, um, I actually have a, a Sherlock Holmes reference in uh, the adventure, Trinity Adventure, which is coming out. Um, uh, the uh, developer, Danielle, she had asked me, see, I want to a person of color as a detective kind of character uh, in the book. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, it's set in 1932. Or 1936, actually, um, and I was like, there was a baby-born uh, uh, black father, white mother in one of the Sherlock Holmes stories, and it, so like she would be about 40 by this time. 
So I'll just use her as a character. And I had to like footnote and annotate and explain. It's like, okay, in case someone mentions it online, here's where I'm getting it from. And here's the blah, blah, blah. And Daniel's like, yeah, I don't care. This looks great. This is fine. I'm like, cool, great. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, it's, it's, it's really important. And of course, uh, Rich reads it. And, she, and he was like, so where's the Sherlock Holmes reference? And I had to explain it to him. He said, okay, I, was, I knew it would be there. I just want to know where it was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you know me too well. Um, but before we get to the important stuff, uh, the other thing I wanted to, to talk to you about is recently, um, Matthew Dixie and I, for our Christmas episode, we watched the third Hobbit film. I'm sorry. Yes. So I have to ask you your opinion about, like, Sylvester McCoy as Radagast. What are your oh. thoughts about that? <laughs> it's, I, it's hard to act when you're covered in poop. <laughs> I think it's true for many things, honestly. <laughs> There's nothing else for it. It's... Um, I can't think of many skills that are accentuated by being covered in poop. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I know writing would be hard if I was covered in poop. That, that is my full extent on that. It's Plus, it's from the Hobbit movies, and the Hobbit movies were all really bad. Yeah, no, they they were they were they were definitely not good. And it was one of those things like when I first saw him. Um, I was like, oh, hey, cool, it's Preston McCoy. And then I started watching movies. It's like, I'm glad he got work. <laughs> but no, I, he's he's one of the the best doctors out there because we actually went to, I want to say it was, was it the Gallifrey Con that was in Baltimore a few years ago. Uh-huh. And I, I was I was fanboying over Sylvester McCoy and he was engaging and making Zora laugh and being a, a totally awesome person to keep her entertained for like, 15 minutes and he didn't have to. It was, it was incredible. Oh, wow. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. I, I, I briefly met him 25 something years ago. It was like right after the series got canceled. Uh, he was at an American convention with Colin Baker. And so I got his autograph, but it was like one of those situations where it's like, we were in a long line. I just got in and say, Hey, what's up? You know, thanks for the autograph. Moved on. Um, uh, and he seemed really, really cool. Uh, but um, everything I've heard about him is that he's just a really, really great guy, and apparently just really loves kids too. Um, yeah, so yeah, that, that all tracks. So that's that's still one of one of my favorite. I, we took a few photos, and that's still one of my favorite photos. Well, that and Zora sort of like sitting on a dialect, so nothing's gonna beat that. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that is so great. Uh, okay, so um, ramble out of the way. We're now into the official stuff. Uh, so um. Uh, you were a developer for uh, our upcoming book, Masks and Mythos, which is right now on Kickstarter. Uh, and that was for Scion. So um, tell me a little bit about kind of what the book's about and how you got started and all that. So for, I guess I should give a little bit more about myself. Um, oh, yeah, sure. For, for people who don't know, I am a writer, developer, and I'm probably most well-known currently for Home Unbound, which is the mm-hmm. 1920s Cthulhu mythos book that's set firmly in Harlem, and it sort of tells the about investigators battling the mythos, and the investigators are more marginalized folks that get to become full-blown protagonists, and it sort of flips Lovecraft's standard on its head, and it mm-hmm. addresses the racism inherent in the work and in the system. Mm-hmm. And so taking all of that, um, when Onyx Path approached me to write 
difficult to not actually just write, but to lead the project for Mask and the Mythos. I, I jumped on it and I wanted to make sure that they understood that I'm going to be bringing all of my thoughts and ideas that would sort of influence the entire book or influence a team of people that chose to write on the book. Mm-hmm. And it was well received. So once yeah. that was out of the way, uh, it came down to figuring out what the book should be about and trying to figure out how to interlinked the mythos, which is this massive nihilistic thing with Scion, which is sort of a mythic hero storytelling system and needing to try to make it appeal to two different groups. Took a little while to sort of suss out how we wanted. And even in the book, one of the sections I think that we have is called uh, mythic nihilism storytelling. And it sort of tells you how you can take the nihilism in the work and the bleakness of the universe and apply the scion mechanic, well, the scion sort of beliefs behind it, and turn it mm-hmm. into like a mythic tale of woe and, and a lot of destruction. Right, and one of the things I liked about that section is um, you explicitly kind of position it as it doesn't have to be a binary thing. It's like you don't have to have just nihilism or just myth, epic myth. You can kind of slide around in that space, and it's like you know how much. Are the great old ones an accent? Are they the focus? Um, how, how dark do you want this to be? Um, so, so you give people a chance to kind of pick and choose how much or how little they want to use this material and integrate into their game, however they see fit. Uh, yeah, and so for the, the main core book itself, my goal was to have it be as, <clears throat> I guess, how can I phrase it? To be easy, to easily input it into any game that you want. And so you can apply the different levels of it. And we did that by making the mythos. The mythos itself isn't some evil that's out to just kill humanity. We've made it sort of an incredibly alien and other experience. So much so that the mythos itself, when it interacts with our world, it causes, I think we even labeled it disruptions. And Mm -hmm. those disruptions are kind of like an antimatter put into a matter universe, which they're not necessarily going to gel well together and it causes ripples and rifts. And for the individual scions themselves, it's almost like they're breaking parts of reality when they use their powers, but however they choose to use their powers is up to them. And, they, and the person themselves dictates whether or not they're good, evil, indifferent. And the mythos itself is primarily, not completely, indifferent and doesn't really care about humanity. And that's actually a good point. Um, I have seen a lot of people when you know, we kind of give the high level of a Cthulhu mythos uh, version of Slyon, um, a lot of them seem to be focused on the kind of the horror and nihilism. And like, why would you play these characters? Um, and it's something that you just touched on, which I, I like, is the fact that you're given this, this alien power, um, but not a morality system necessarily going with it. You could try to do something good with it. And that was really important to me when we started because it's to, to make sure the player has agency. No matter what we did throughout the entire course of the process, the one thing I kept coming back to is we want to make sure that we give the player agency, but we needed to make sure that their experience was different and unique to be a mythos mm-hmm. scion compared to a normal scion. But at the same time, they need to be able to interact and engage with each other on similar levels. And mm-hmm. there needs to be a reason why a let's say like uh a scion of thor because i was reading marvel earlier this morning um a scion <laughs> of thor wants to hang out with a scion of cthulhu and right. one of the things it is is a scion of cthulhu 
their innate power itself can break fate bonds. And oh. that could be a positive or negative depending on each individual psyop. For instance, if you're mm -hmm. fate bound to this group of people and you want to try to change that, you may try to interact with this other scion whose powers itself erodes those bonds. Nice. And that, that, that makes sense. It gives uh, a different perspective on how things work. Um, it's like you're not necessarily uh, ignoring what's going on in the scion core game, but you're subverting it and twisting it and, and looking at it from different angles as a result. Which is kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, um, uh, how are the, the mechanics going to work? I mean, I know you are a big fan of using mechanics to tell a story. Um, so how, how are the mechanics in this going to help kind of accentuate this, this uh, uh, Cthulhu mythos town story? So one of the things I really wanted to do is I wanted to try to minimize the amount of mechanics needed. So mm -hmm. it focuses more on actually telling the story. And so instead of like having an entirely different sort of character creation process, we adhered to the Scion character creation process and we basically only had to add one new stat and it yeah. sort of parallels uh, legend. And for us, we call it awareness because almost yeah. throughout the course of the game, we talk about discovering the mythos as more of a sort of a, a transcendence of, of, of awareness. Like you acquire more knowledge from the mythos, which yeah. tries to make it somewhat more, adhere to the original origin of the text. It's always about people discovering things they weren't meant to know. Right. And so therefore, in a sense, they're transcending and they're getting a larger awareness of the universe around them. And while the mythos for us uh, comes from a different universe that sort of travels on the divine wavelength to separate it, because the mythos entities, the great old ones, are not gods, are not titans. They're a completely alien intelligence that's older and Neil would probably argue with me, but I will say more powerful mm -hmm. than everything else. Right. So they're they're not only outside the game, they're above the game. Yes. And so we wanted to represent all that in through the storytelling of the game itself, but through one stat. And so we have all that background and everything else linked to that. And the more you acquire that, the more you sort of disrupt the universe and everything else around you. Okay. So so you the you. It's not like a game like, say, uh, Vampire the Masquerade, where you become more alien uh, and you're, you have a stat that reflects that, but ultimately you kind of have to roleplay that. In this game, the, it sounds like the environment's kind of is pushing you towards being more alien because everything gets more disrupted and distorted and moves further away from the world you recognize. Not quite. It's more that okay. you have a level, level of understanding other people about. Like, say, for instance, um, if we went out and we're hanging out or back in the old times when we could go to a bar and I say, all right, I'll be back. And I, and I take a step off and I like go to get my coat. And in the coat room, I see that the, that the staff there has this big, massive pulsating brain in a jar that's mm -hmm. talking to them and telling them what to do. Me having that encounter has changed how I view the universe is I now right, see that okay. this thing exists that has no bearing and no concept of why it should work in our universe. And so regardless of what I do going forward, I now have that sliver of information that I can attempt to apply in some form or fashion. And when I come back to the table, I can tell you about it and you'll go, sure, sure. Maybe you don't have another stout tonight. <laughs> yeah. All right, buddy, you've had enough. <laughs> okay, that makes more sense. So so it's not that you're making the environment more alien, it's more you're recognizing 
the weirdness of the world and nobody else is seeing it like you are. And so you're getting more and more divorced from him and you just because you're, you're understanding, you're recognizing knowledge that they can't comprehend. Yes. And so that was one of the hardest parts of the game because a lot of, we, we even mentioned this, um, the original text itself deals with a, 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 a form of, we'll call it literary madness that is not true and representative of real world. Right. And mm-hmm. we didn't want to bring that into the game as that. Bah. Yeah. Right. You don't want, you don't want to, to trivialize mental illness um, by, by resorting to older ways of communicating that information. Um, it's become more of having that knowledge and what that knowledge lets you understand that other people don't and how you want to apply that knowledge. And mm-hmm. the knowledge itself opens a, a gateway, we'll say, to one of the great old ones where they may give you more power, but with other scions, the more power they get, they become demigods and everything else. The more power you get, you also then have the ability to start disrupting everything around you. Okay. That makes sense. Interesting. That's really cool. Um, and I think that'll pair interestingly with with Dragon, which is all about um, people who are, are also kind of in the seams of the world and uh, a lot, that's a very espionage-heavy game. This feels like it's definitely much more of an investigation game, which makes sense given its roots. Uh, we are very much an investigation game. We actually included some expanded rules on investigating because one of the, the key cruxes of the text is that they were a lot of, for them, scholars and everything else that would go and they'd discover the Necronomicon just hanging out in the library. They'd read it and they'd faint. Mm-hmm. And then right. they'd get up again with that knowledge and go forth into the world. Um, for us, our scions and characters are more heroic, so they don't they don't read the text and faint. They read the text and they comprehend it, or at least a fraction of it, and they can use that. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so let's talk about um, uh, the pantheon proper, which, if I remember correctly, you don't have it as a pantheon. The pantheon is kind of like just the name you use because that's the name we use in Scion, but it's it's much looser than that, right? Pretty much. A lot of it we also put down to, we'd look at it from a human perspective because there's still cults and everything else. And the cults themselves have decided that it's a mythos pantheon and they've gendered some of them and everything else. The mythos itself doesn't really care. If that's what you want to do, cool beats. You do you. (laughs) I may need to use you for something later. It's like, sure, we're pantheon, whatever. What do you got for me now? And so, and as a lot of, and some of the original stuff, a lot of, some of them are actually more interactive, like Narlothotep is definitely a more active force than we would say, like, as I, I, I like to reference it because it's sort of like the, the, the butt of all of our jokes now, Cthulhu is. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think in the core book, we cover maybe 10 or 12 different uh, great old ones. And a lot of them themselves we take from the original text, we sort of altered them somewhat. And I think we've created one or two new ones because one of the biggest problems with the entire process itself is trying to establish copyright. A lot of Lovecraft's work is technically in public domain, but then there's some contention about other things Mm -hmm. and a lot of negative things I can say about the racist misogynist writer that he was the one thing that I will give, compliment him for partially is that he wanted people to take the material and make their own stories. Mind you, right. all those people were white writers, but 
the, the core of is he wanted people to go and build on this thing and not have it siloed off to one individual person or company mm-hmm. and trying to establish what is legally usable was tricky, but um, it was one of the other key things I stressed to the writers, and I think we pulled it off. Yeah, I remember there was a lot of discussion about that early on, um, and um, I, w- I will say one of the things when we were first talking about this is we did reach out to uh, Chaosium, um, and we're like, hey, so here's what we want to make, and there were some discussions with um, our good friend Jim Louder. He helped us really kind of navigate that, and he was able to point things out, like you said, um, here are some of the writers who have built on it, and here's stuff that's kind of uh, uh, foundational for for their work versus what's relatively in public domain. Um, and that was a huge, huge help. And also just, um, even though uh, they didn't directly work on the book, just having a partner like that being, a, you know, who can, who can, who's a lot of experience navigating those legal trouble waters and being able to say, make sure you say this, make sure you don't say that, what was helpful. And then you already having been through that was another huge help because we didn't have to dump all that on you. You knew a lot of that. It was just kind of like, oh, hey, we heard about this one edge case, by the way, make sure you're cooperating. You're like, oh yeah, okay. I, I, I think I remember that and we can make that work. So that was surprisingly low stress given how much of a minefield that is. I, I'm and, glad you think it's low stress. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me phrase that. It was low stress for me. <laughs> it, I mean, it was low stress for, for me and Rich to go, okay, cool, you guys have got it. That's great. Um, but, I mean, uh, uh, we're going to digress briefly. Um, but, I mean, the, the public domain in the U.S. is a goddamn nightmare um, because uh, what is considered to be protected and what's considered to be public domain is so vague. Um, I, I have, have ranted often and repeatedly, if people see me on social media, about the Arthur Conan Doyle estate um, because they one of the Sherlock Holmes books is still not in public domain, although it will be in like two years. Uh, and they are trying their damnness to say that for a long time it was the whole character of Sherlock Holmes and all the characters related to Sherlock Holmes were therefore not public domain because his one last book was. And that finally got contested and overruled a few years ago. Um, but now they're in that ruling. It said anything that was unique and distinct to the, um, the case book uh, was therefore considered to be protected. And so they're trying. So this is why the Enola Holmes lawsuit for Netflix came out because they're like, well, Sherlock Holmes having feelings is unique to the case book, and therefore it's protected and you owe us money, which is garbage. Um, <laughs> it's complete fucking nonsense. Uh, but that's just. One writer, one body of work, and that's already complicated and nuanced. Throw in exactly what you said. It's like, uh, um, how much of this is Lovecraft? How much of this is Robert E. Howard? How much of this is is, is even there's a Lovecraft writer named Pugmire, which I have learned since I started working on that game, um, because I get weird searches as a result of that. I mean, there there are so many different writers uh, uh, who worked in that material, and they added and spun and, and add their own material onto that. So being able to navigate that, I have a ton of respect for for folks like you and folks like the the people at Chaosium because that's got to be really really tricky. Which I, I can tell you now, though, this has made me decide is in future, all of my books are going to be far in the future, and I'm going to make everything up myself. No more research. <laughs> um, actually, um, uh, let's let's dig in a little bit. Um, so, uh, part of the research, I mean, that's we, 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 you mentioned a little bit about um, um, 
Hormone bounds. Uh, and obviously that, that's very much 1920s, but the research is primarily from a black perspective as opposed to a white racist perspective. Um, but the new book, Haunted West, is how much, how many years of research have you done on that book? Um, wow. Uh, since 2016, off and on. And right. f- full force probably since 20, mid 2018. And I'm still discovering new things every day. I mean, it, it, it's – what is that like? I mean, because I have done some books with heavy research, but nothing to the level that you're working on with, with both of those books. I mean, where do you draw lines of like, okay, this is historically accurate, but it's not going to make for a good game versus people need to know this because it's history most people don't know about? So for Harlem Bound, it was, it was easier because it was a very condensed amount of time. Like while the book mm-hmm. itself did talk about all of Harlem, we mm-hmm. focused on the Renaissance. So that let us sprinkle a little bit of like, this is what it was before. This is a smidge of what it's after, but this is a Renaissance. Mm-hmm. For Haunted West, we're covering like the Western era. So roughly 1840 to, depending on who you ask, uh, 1890 to 19, I want to say 16, which was the last eventual stagecoach robbery. Right. So it's a lot. And then we're covering like the whole West, not just like one individual territory or this and that. And then we have a bit about the rest of the world because while the rest of the world isn't as specific for the core book, we wanted to at least touch on it slightly so you can get some idea that over here they're doing this, over here this is going on. I think one of the the biggest posts I saw on Twitter a few years ago was that around 1850, they composed a party of like different people from different parts of the world, which had, I want to say, samurai, a gunslinger, a Victorian gentleman, and two other people from just different parts of the world, all at the same time period, to sort of mm-hmm. show you how vast and different the world was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's and all that's potentially historically accurate. And, and I mean, I know. Um, you also have to touch on things like you have to discuss Canada and Mexico and China because all of those countries have an impact on the West. So to give you an idea, I want to say the the history section alone, and this is pure history that mm-hmm. we've covered, is 35,000 words. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. And that's not counting the different groups of people. That's sort of its own section. Then the... Uh, alternate timeline of the Renaissance, that's like another 10,000 maybe. And then there's all the normal core book stuff, like there's scenario, there's character creation, there's um, perks, peculiarities, system. It's it's going to be a hefty tome. I'm thinking it could stop a bullet. <laughs> I, I have worked on games that have stopped bullets, so I, I, I don't know how scary and exhausting that could be. <laughs> and Fortunately, I, I had you that were willing to help do some of the content reading, and you've read through the history section, and you see, you've seen how mm-hmm. detailed we've gotten and what we had to sort of like skim over and then still try to like link in to give readers enough information to work with. Because my objective isn't to tell you everything. My objective is to give you an overview and give you launching off points for whatever really interests you. But I have to hook you with something to get that interest going. Right, and I think that's uh, that could be really tricky um, uh, figuring out where to draw those lines. Because I mean, even for something like masks and mythos is like 
you can't just assume people have a, a default knowledge of, of the Cthulhu Mythos because, like we've already said, like several different variants attributed them. Um, but also, there, there's, there's, you know, context you have to worry about. Um, it's like, okay, who's re you're reading this from now, a now perspective? So there's going to be knowledge that's going to be contemporaneous, but we as the reader have to be aware of, and also you have to correct misapprehensions. Um, so it's like, you know, I, I knew that you were told in history class this happened, but that's not what was actually going on at the time period, you know? So a question for you, since sure. it's going to drop on the Kickstarter, is how much how much spoilers can I give away about Mask? That's that's one of my, my hesitancies, so I don't say a lot about it. Because it is not my ahead. IP, so I can't go, I'll tell you everything. You want to know this? This is how it works. Spoil away, because if, if you say something really, really cool that people then want to go buy the Kickstarter, that's a great thing for us. So. Awesome. Uh, so one of the things that I really wanted to do, since just touching on what you said, is that not knowing everyone's understanding of the mythos or like how much they might have read the original work, the mm -hmm. objective that I had was to ground it in um, the Miskatonic Hollow, which is all the different parts of the country that Lovecraft made, like Arkham, Dunwich, and we added in a new one to sort of establish a baseline for everyone. And we mythos and soundified all the different locations. And we give you mm -hmm. sort of like an overview of Arkham in present day. And it has some history to it, has some different mythos things that have gone on, and it gives you a place to go and engage with. And if you're a um, GM and you just want to like have one or two off adventures, you can then go and have those specifically in what we're calling the Miskatonic Hollow. Mm -hmm. And they can go, they encounter the mythos, they have their investigative weird adventures, and they leave forever changed and they don't need to ever go back, but it's always there. And so that was really important to get done because once you have that for the Kickstarter stretch goals, we got to go a little bit more, we'll say off the ranch so I can make my hot question. Um, <laughs> and one of the goals I'm really excited for that I hope we hit is going to the home world of the elder things mm. or to the Yithian city. Like, Oh, nice. I, I, I love the Yithians and I've been jonesing to write that. And for the book itself, I let a lot of the, the writers have done a lot of work and I focus more on game development and sort of helping shape things here and there where it's needed. And right. for some of the stretch goals, I am going to, to handwrite them myself. Sorry, sorry, team. <laughs> this is some of the things that I really want to do. No, that's the, 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 the advantage of being in charge. It's like, nope, I'm doing this part. So, I mean... Um, uh, let's dig into that because I, I think that's one of the things that I, I like about this book is that you um, spend a lot of time talking about the the you know of Arkham and uh, uh, Mystic University, all these these iconic locations, but you you update them not only to modern day but also to Scion, um, and also you you update them in other ways. So I mean, what what are some of the ways that you've kind of brought that material up to what you want to do in Masks and Mythos? So one of the things that we did is we included sort of a a demographic breakdown of the region. So you can see where people might have uh, migrated from to America. You might get a better sense of who originally lived there. And we anchored them somewhat more history. I know, for instance, in Arkham, we talk somewhat about the indigenous population that was there beforehand. Mm -hmm. And that sort of cements it. And there may be a character from back then sort of roaming around in the book too. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe not. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> And we got to really like sort of lean into some things that were really interesting. And for each of the towns, uh, 
a different writer wrote each of them. So each of them feels different and it has different aspects of that writer's personality and what they wanted to highlight in that text, which is also really important because you don't want one person to write all of it and then decide how it's all going to look, but having each right. person add in their own flavor and then us going through and sort of like shaping it somewhat makes it stronger in my opinion. I agree. Um, and then also, um, you each city or each location has uh, what you're calling the strange times, which are fixed their story hooks, right? Uh, I guess anyone that's read anything I've written will know that I, I have a, a propensity for adding to like to add in story or plot hooks. Because mm -hmm. as I, you know what, I'll, I'll use another hot list, but as a balladeer, the person <laughs> runs a game, you need to, you may get stuck and you may not know what you want to run for a scenario. Right. But then when you see this, oh, they gave me this little this little snippet. This is super cool. It gives me enough to run my idea with for my group of friends. Mm -hmm. And having gone to conventions before, I said I'm going to run a game. Sometimes having not planned games, I'm more of an improv GM. I just need yep, an idea same. and I can run an engaging game for like six hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. And, and uh, I love when writers do that. Matthew's another developer who who really pushes that on his developers to add story hooks. Um, because uh, the same way, it's like when I'm, when I'm running a game, I see those kind of stuff. I just, okay, I can start thinking of a game right now that could run with this. Um, where there are a number of games out there where I picked up, it's like, this is cool, but what do I do with it? You know? And so having lots of the, oh, I could do this and do that. And, and that's another place where I think you're right, that having multiple writers helps because they're going to think of stuff that you would never thought of to do in the setting. Yeah. And if, if not for the, the limit, a word count limit, I would have probably added in some random charts in there too. <laughs> you and your charts. You love charts. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will point out, though, that I, I am out of the entire process. I, I am miffed about one thing, and I, I will air my myth here right uh -oh. now. Oh no! For the entire audience. Uh huh. You cut out my two handouts. I wanted those handouts. <laughs> I wanted them. I know. I know. Um, that we actually talked about that, and, and an internal discussion just came down to just budget, really. And sometimes that happens. Um, but who knows? Maybe on stretch goals, we'll be able to get those back in. We'll see how the Kickstarter does. So if you want handouts, listener, pledge to the Kickstarter, and we can see what we can do. Caveat: I can't promise actually anything. I meant caveat. <laughs> <laughs> Richard seems right now going, what did you do, Webb? Um, <laughs> just tell him it's all me. It's a, it's a new guy. Right, yeah. Just just, just, just blame the new guy. It's fine. Um, Spidey! No, I'm not going to do that. That was um, my best Jetsons, sort of. I, I could hear it. I could hear the, 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 the fist shake while you were saying that. That was great. Literally, I was doing that. Thank <laughs> so See? for people listening, we don't have cameras on right now. <laughs> so it is a little weird that you noticed my fist cheek. <laughs> when we talked earlier that I'm, I'm really good at sussing out your clues, so. <laughs> I'm in your mind. <laughs> well, there's a lot of uh, available space these days. <laughs> Fuck. Whew, yeah, ain't that the truth. Um, so, um... Uh, is there anything else about uh, Mass of Mythos that I, we haven't talked about yet that you're really excited about? Um, so um, I had Sam is the person that wrote the introductory scenario for the for the book itself. And mm -hmm. Sam's probably really well known for the Call of Cthulhu. Um, I want to say it was an iPad game that came out in 2017 to 2018. It was sort of oh, a okay. choose your own adventure kind of 
kind of deal. Yeah. That was really fun that. to play. And I was super excited to have Sam on the team as everyone else and sort of get them to write the scenario. Mm -hmm. And we hope it's engaging to get people really to get a feel for how a mythos scion scenario should work. And it gives you sort of some investigative clues. It's enough to sort of walk you through and get you used to the mythos. It touches on a few different things that we don't go into a lot of detail about, but gives you enough to work with. Nice. And also it is entitled The Scion Job, which I believe is a leverage reference. That that is my easy levers reference. Anyone that's followed me knows that I am a huge leverage leverage fan. Speaking of which, have you seen the Korean version of Leverage? I have not, but I will now find this. Yeah, I I, I haven't seen it either. But um, uh, Ian A. Watson mentioned it to me the other day because um, we we're talking about Leverage in regards to Trinity, um, and he's like, "Yeah, there's a Korean version." I'm like what? And so I thought it was the American version redub the Korean. No, they shot a whole new version of Leverage with the Korean cast. Oh, that's awesome. And um, because the episode seasons are shorter, so they have a much more kind of truncated plotline, apparently. But you can get the DVDs with American subtitles or English subtitles uh, like for like 50 bucks on eBay. And I've been, I've been looking at it for a while going, do I want to buy this? Um, but if you're a leverage fan, you might want you may dig that. I'm going to pick that up. <laughs> it's a must have now. <laughs> Yeah, well, let me know how it goes then, because because if you dig it, then I'll probably dig it too. But it, it was just, I, I'm always weirdly fascinated by um, different cultures reinterpreting uh, media. Like I have um, uh, the Russian Sherlock Holmes movies, um, and I watched the uh, Japanese Miss Sherlock, and so I, I'm I, you know, like taking this core kind of canon of stories and how different uh, uh, cultures reinterpret and play with that is really. There's another one actually um, related to that. Uh, called um, Watson Holmes, um, which is reimagining them as uh, uh, Watson as a, a black detective from Iraq, or as a black a do black doctor from Iraq, and the other one, uh, Holmes is actually a black detective um, in the modern day, and, and they did this really interesting stuff with that dynamic change. It was an all-black creative uh, team, comic book team. Um, I've read that. That's really good. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's a really good comic, and I was like, it, 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 I'm genuinely pleased to how I don't want to say faithful, but the core of the, you can definitely see the core of the characters there, but it's doing its own thing. It's doing its own thing really well. And I love when, to see those kind of riffs and reimaginations. That's why that's all the Korean thing. I'm like, I would be really curious to see how much of their culture they're putting into these stories and how that plays out differently. Very cool. So, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, well, then uh, we'll kind of wrap this up uh, a little early, but um, anything you want to talk about? Uh, in regards to uh, Haunted West or um, just stuff you're doing normally? Um, I guess for anyone that's, that's interested, uh, Haunted West is available for pre-order. It's a massively sprawling book, as we've discussed, but it sort of highlights all the forgotten voices of the Old West, and it provides an alternate timeline about what happens if the Reconstruction had actually succeeded instead of being killed by racist and people-seeking power plays. And it focuses on... Uh, hope through perseverance, sort of like the underlying theme of a lot of my work. Nice. Are you sure you don't have any of the questions you want to know about mask? Like I, I'm, <laughs> I'm full of knowledge, but I'm not sure what, what to share. And I don't want people to feel, to feel they didn't get their, their full 45 minutes of entertainment. Well, I mean, people who listen to the podcast know that, that if we stay on topic for more than half an hour, it's actually a really good day for us. So <laughs> This is this is pretty typical, but um, I honestly, 
uh, I think you've, you've hit the high points um, because we're people are going to be able to read the manuscripts in bits and pieces as they uh, follow the Kickstarter. Um, so uh, right now uh, we're recording this right before it goes live. So I believe the plan is on Tuesdays and Thursdays you will get some kind of mythos dump, whether it's a, 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 a blog post or a section of the manuscript. Um, so folks can kind of follow along and get more and more information as the Kickstarter goes along. Um, uh, and I'm kind of, oh, wait, there actually is one more thing I did want to kind of chat about is you talk, we talked about awareness, which is great and awesome. Um, I did see on uh, our Discord, so people were curious about the callings. Um, are the callings going to be the same or are we changing those? I think you did change some of them. We have some, I guess we'll call them inverse callings that sort of flip some of the other ones in their head, but we also have one specific um, mythos oriented calling called, I want to say it's called arcane calculation, mm -hmm. which um, I'll, I'll let people read it and see what they think before I comment on it. I may need to jump on the discord now just to, to start talking to people. No, yeah, totally. Um, we have, a, we actually have a, a mask mythos channel just for you if you want to jump on discord. Um, but yeah, I, I, you have like things like um, as opposed to creator, it's destroyer, as opposed to healer, it's defiler. So they're, they're, you can talk about that inversion is really interesting and, and compelling. So you can kind of play either side of that, right? Yeah, um, it goes back to like one of the big things was versatility. And mm -hmm. just because also you have awareness as a stat, it does not replace legend. In fact, you have both of them and they can run parallel to each other. Oh, okay. That's good to know. And then yeah, there's also like uh, there, there's new knacks, there's new boons, um, so that the, so it's not so you even have a whole interesting powers to, to reflect that. But those is, unlike dragon, where it's a whole new set of powers, this is in addition to the normal hero powers you can get these, these additional knacks, additional boons you can take as well. And we've got a gaggle of relics that were sort of taken from some of the original texts, and we've sort of put a little spin on them. And you can use them if you want, but it's like everything else. It's power, but it comes with a cost. And it depends on if you want to pay that cost to use it. Yeah, and I think that's a good kind of way of, of summarizing the, the book from my perspective is that it, uh, the a normal sound hero versus a masks hero, the masks hero is going to be probably a little more powerful, but they're going to have a much bigger cost at the end of the day. Which is really important for balancing out for us because we want it. Some people could say it's it's a Star Wars riff where you have come to the dark side, which is <laughs> quick and easy compared right. to like the light side that's slow and arduous, and you get, live on a planet and you drink green purple milk. <laughs> right. Yeah. A planet which may or may not be Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> but. I wouldn't quite go that far, but it was just a joke I could resist. Well, no, fair. I mean, I'm just more the, the islands where they filmed the um, Jedi scenes with, with Luke was actually a, an island off of the coast of Ireland that um, I once lived like 40 miles from. So that's why I was like, oh, hey, it's, I know that place. <laughs> it's weird. I was say I also live in Atlanta, so a lot of times I'll watch things like the Watchmen TV series. And it's like, oh, I know that place. <laughs> so, oh, are we about to talk about Watchmen? Like that's, yeah, that's an do. hour right there. <laughs> Oh man, the Watchmen series was so good. And I was so not expecting it to be good. I was iffy, and I'm upset that there isn't going to be a second season. I know a lot of people say, we don't need a second season. It was perfect. Mm -hmm. I want a second season. I want a second season because one of the things, as I'll, I'll say, as, as a black person that engages in science fiction and all this media, mm -hmm. 
I want to be able to see these shows continue their fluation. Like I want eight seasons of Watchmen, how people had like eight seasons of Lost. And if it gets crappy at the end, it deserves to have been awesome to have the ability to get crappy. That's really fair. That's a really fair point. As opposed to something like like Watchmen or even Lovecraft Country, where it's like it kind of feels like it's we're doing the thing and then we're done. You know, it's an event. And it's like, no. it, I think and it works for like me as a viewer. It works for those the people actually producing it and making it. That's giving more people of color and different backgrounds chances and opportunities to get a larger range of work, and it diversifies the world. Mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, there's a soapbox there for a second. No, no, no. And and that's one of the things that – one of the weird things that I liked about Watchmen specifically was because it was filmed in Atlanta. Um, There was that kind of weird dissonance of like, oh, hey, in the background, that's the the bar that I used to drink at at CCP. Um, But separately also, these people look like my neighbors because I I live in a a part of the city that's that's, – lots of black neighbors around here. And so it's like, oh, I I recognize those people. I see those people um, all the day. So they're – in. I'm seeing black people in spaces that I live nearby. And it's like, this is Atlanta. This is where I live. Um, where a lot of times when you have the kind of stunt casting um, of a city for a different country, and it's like, oh, okay, but, but that's not, that doesn't look like where I live because it's way too many white people. Um, so, so yeah, I feel you. It's like, it, it, it's nice to, to see something that feels authentic. interesting and compelling. Yeah. Authentic. Um, but yeah, it's a good point of like the, the one Thing that people who don't really have is do long-running shitty sci-fi series. <laughs> and you should be able to. I'm, I'm sorry. That's like mm. no. That's that. That's fair. It's like you know, if if uh, if Supernatural get ten seasons, why not <laughs> watch ten? That, right? <laughs> ten, you say? Didn't they? End I don't at 15? know. Jesus, I don't even. Is, is it that much? I mean, I after I season 15. three, I was just like, I don't, I can't, I will never catch up. So I just stopped. I just gave up. <laughs> I watched five seasons. The 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 end of fifth seasons when it should have ended, it was a good ending. Could have called it a day. Yep. No, I agree. I agree. You should also have like two hundred issues of comic book too. That's another thing that I'm annoyed about. But but yeah, no. uh, Watchmen was was just fantastic television. Um, Lovecraft Country also. Fantastic television. I'm not surprised Lovecraft Country's not come up during, considering the, the, the intersection of what we're talking about here, but um, <laughs> it was just all, it's just genuinely good television. And it's like, wow, it's you, you know, I like I like seeing, I mean, I like seeing people of color on TV, period, but also I just like seeing good TV. And it's great. Do you more of Which that? Which now is the time for it. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, it's like make more of it. Um, but again, like because of where I live, there's lots of people who film around here. And I have been seeing more crews of people of color around just around my neighborhood, which is great. I'm good. Make more of that. I think I think one of the reasons Watchmen really worked so well, though, is that it progressed the story on and it sort of followed a a what if sort of train of thought, which is probably Mm -hmm. the best thing they could have done for it and not try to adhere to the original text. Yeah, and um, I think, honestly, they did a really good job of something I love. In general, which is finding the seams in an existing property and, and expanding those out. Um, like, like I love stories of like you know people talk. We're to write from Moriarty's perspective, you know, um, or like we're going to uh, blow decks. Uh, the, car- the Star Trek cartoons, like you know, it's a great thing of like here's the kind of shit you don't see in the normal Star Trek shows. Um, I love that kind of media, and, and 
when I heard those movie Watchmen show, I was just like, oh, this is going to be so bad because I had this built-up vision of Watchmen in my head. And they did a really good job of saying, okay, we're not going to contradict anything in that comic, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that follows from that that just hasn't been explored. And just little things like um, – uh, oh, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, the, the Hooded Justice. You know, it's like that was a small change because they never, you never see his face. So it's like, yeah, sure. Why couldn't he have been black? And it's like that's a nice, that, nice touch. That was a great addition. Yeah, it was. Now, now I feel like I need to rewatch it. And then we come back and we do sort of like a thing per episode where we talk about it in detail. Oh man, I would, I would love to do a podcast going through stuff like Watchmen. That'd be great. You know, in our both of our infinite free time. Well, come on, what? I've got nothing but time. It's not like the full-time job, the family, the daughter that is becoming more and more active in social activities, massive projects and books. It's podcast, four hours a day, buddy. Okay, what else, what else do you need? Um, uh, anyway, but if people did want to find you online to talk about Watchmen or anything you're working on, where would they find you? Uh, at darker underscore Hugh on Twitter. It's probably the best place. You can go to my website. I myself go there about every six months just to check it out. And think, I really should update this. <laughs> uh, that's so true. I feel pain right now. Um, <laughs> speaking of my website, which I haven't updated recently, um, you can find me at pugsteady.com. Um, uh, you can also find uh, my Pugmire work at realmsofpugmire.com. From there, you can find access to all of my social media accounts. Um, you can find me and the rest of the Pathcast team, and maybe even Chris at some point, um, on the Onyx Path Discord. Um, we have, uh, since our last episode where uh, Dixie called out that uh, the the Trinity supremacy of there, we have a lot more Scion channels as well as channels for other games too. So Trinity's not the only one that has 12,000 channels on Discord. Thank you, Ian, for the expansion. Um, so yeah, come uh, hang out with us, chat with us, uh, uh, back to Kickstarter. Um, uh, past the mythos um if you want to know more about dragon uh just go back two episodes in the pathcast we talked to danielle about dragon um this is our first dual kickstarter like this so it's going to be really interesting I'm, I'm really excited and curious to see how people react to whether they gravitate to one book or the other or both so it'll be really exciting to see how this all pans out uh but with that as always any worlds one pathcast